you could reasonably argue that without a writer like Carrie Blakinger, we'd be lost as a society. Carrie is out on the frontier. She's like a firewall, protecting and insisting upon our shared sense of humanity. Content warning. There are references in this episode to sexual assault, drug use, sex work, life on death row, and a lot of other challenging subject matter. So I just want to give you a heads up. I should also add, as I said before, that this episode contains one of the greatest tweets I've ever read, if not the greatest tweet. Okay, let's go meet our special guest writer, Carrie Blakinger. You know the drill. Strap in, because here we go. I just went to the bookstore I used to steal from to buy heroin 20 years ago when I was homeless, and they have my book. So, of course, I panicked and bought a copy and then sobbed in the alley. So if you saw a weirdo crying behind Harvard Coop a few minutes ago, yes, that was me. Amazing. I really think that could be a contender for one of the greatest tweets of all time. I was in Boston for a book event, and mm-hmm. I was just like walking around kind of like fact checking my memory in some ways there's so many things in the book that take place in boston and so many shitty parts of my life that took place in boston i found the first place that i did heroin i found the street that i was walking down as this woman who i ended up working for she was my pimp or whatever she explained how boston sex work was gonna work i went by like alleys and rooftops that i was sexually assaulted on and then i was walking by the coop and i went in just because i was like oh they used to have that cafe that had some like really good snacks and i walked in and i was like oh that's right this is a bookstore they're gonna have books and then i went to try to find the memoir section i didn't really think it would be there like it's in a lot of bookstores but i just somehow didn't think it would actually be there and then i saw it started crying in the middle of the bookstore and then just full on which i think is great by the way but like like a little crying not like sobbing the sobbing was later i was just like crying not enough to like attract attention one girl was kind of like this looks weird and then i start taking selfies and that also looked weird like why is she taking selfies with this random ass book But then I was like, oh my God, now she's staring at me. Things are getting weird. I just need to go buy a copy of this. I don't want them to think I'm doing something creepy or weird because I just came in and took some selfies with your books. (laughs) So I just like went and bought a copy. And I was actually worried that the clerk was going to notice the name on my credit card and be like, why are you buying your own book, you weirdo? And then I walked out back and walked around the corner and into the alley. And I just sat down and was just absolutely overcome by it i started crying and and then i did like a tiktok from the alley (laughs) a little bit later i i tweeted about it what was the tiktok may i ask just a longer version of the tweet like i was saying like i'm crying in the tiktok though like this is right at the end of like me crying and i'd been like meaning to do more tiktoks when i was on book tour and i sort of hadn't because right i don't know some of it's kind of like hey guys here's where i shot up the first time you know what i mean like some of it was so dark i almost didn't want to be triggering about it by showing people all these places did you find it triggering Not like triggering in the sense of being like, oh, I want to go get high, but just creepy and like depressing. It was stressful in some weird ways. I've lived in places where I had had a lot of bad things happen. I lived in Ithaca after I got sober. I was living in a part of New Jersey that was, frankly, all of New Jersey feels like there's like just a lot of dark memories there because I was doing sex work all over the state. So when I lived in New Jersey, I would sometimes just be going somewhere mundane and stumble across a place that I didn't know was there, that I didn't know I was going to run into and be like, oh God, I remember that trick here however many years ago. 
So I've had this experience before. This is one of few places that I hadn't been to at all in so long. It had been 20 years. And it's funny, my recollections of like places and geography and was a little bit better than I expected. But the one thing I noticed consistently is that every set of stairs was much shorter than I remember it. I guess I really hate stairs because in my mind, they are like two to three times as long as they actually are. Things that are like three steps. Oh, I wonder if it resonated in a different way, perhaps, because it sounded, based on reading your book and following you on Twitter, that Boston was really where it started. Your parents were sort of perhaps not sure what to do. Your time as a figure skater had come to an end, and so you were going to go to Harvard Summer School. Is that correct? Yeah, I went to yeah. Harvard Summer School. I mean, I think the thought was that I would get more interested in college-level academics and use that right. to get over the abrupt end to my skating career. I instead got into drugs. I also ended up accidentally walking by the ice rink. I had no idea. When I was in Boston that summer, I was still skating some at the beginning of the summer. And the idea was that I was going to like keep training singles and that I was going to go to the rink and I could walk to the rink. And I did a radio interview at WGBH and realized that nah, I can probably walk back from here. So I was walking back and I had no idea that I was going to pass by the old rink, but I was like a block away and I saw the curved top of a building and I was like, that looks like an ice rink. <laughs> and then I got closer and I was like, wow, holy shit, that is. And I think that was also where we had done the warm up for nationals and they had some of the practice ice at nationals the year that nationals was in Boston. <laughs> This tweet was from November of 2020. If Hunter Biden ever worried that his struggle with addiction would derail his dad's career, I hope he goes to bed tonight knowing that in the end it did not. I don't mean that as a political statement, just a hope from one recovering addict to another. That got 889 comments, 9,436 retweets, and 102,000 likes. I think a few months before, some commentator had made some observation about how, you know, he was impacting his dad's career. I don't remember who it was who would say that kind of shitty thing, you know. And I remember thinking, there's so much that you do blame yourself for in an addiction. And I can imagine so well that you might, in that position, blame yourself for that, especially when Hunter became such a target during the campaign. And I'd been thinking about this for I don't know, a few months before the election and before the results were finalized. And then when they finally were, I was like, wow, that must be a relief to him. I think he's a pretty sensitive. I think you're right. Just felt like that must be such a relief to know that you didn't derail your dad's life in such a huge way like that. In your own life experience, is there something that you might equate to that? Like something significant where maybe you were carrying the weight for that? where maybe later you realize, oh, that's not on me. The thing is, like, I didn't really have dependents or, like, people who's, who, like, anything was sort of dependent on me in that way. I wasn't big enough to be derailing to anyone's life. My derailing was not generally happening in the public until I got arrested. But I will say that I felt like I let my dog down. Like, I had jumped off a bridge in, in 2007 when I was on drugs, and I was not on drugs at that moment, but I mean, I was generally doing drugs um, and I was suicidal and I jumped off bridge. I was trying to kill myself, but instead I fractured my back. 
And afterwards, the person I was dating suggested that I should get a dog. Maybe that would prevent me from doing that again. And so I ended up very randomly getting a dog from a friend of somebody that I met in the line at Walmart. (laughs) And she followed me everywhere. And she felt like the one person who didn't know that I was fucking up. And she loved me anyway. And then I got arrested and she was not with me and I didn't know what happened to her. And I eventually found out. And there was a family that kept her. They'd ended up becoming very close with me after I got out and they eventually gave her back. But one of the really cool things about this, aside from the fact that I now have this lifelong connection to them, they're just some of the kindest people. They've, I feel like they've forgiven me for things that I did before I knew them. You know what I mean? Yes. It felt um, really good when I, when I wrote the book to be able to, in the acknowledgements, put in my dog, Charlotte. And then earlier this week, there was a Wikipedia article posted about me. Like I'm now like Wikipedia oh, wow. famous, right? But they mentioned my dog in there. Charlotte is memorialized in Wikipedia. And I I know that it's only fucking Wikipedia, but like, it's very cool to me. And I know Charlotte as a dog would not give a shit about such human things as um, online encyclopedias, but it still feels good to feel like I did good by her in the end. More Twitterverse after the break. Welcome back to Twitterverse. I'm going to DM another tweet. Hashtag breaking. Texas juvenile prisons just confirmed they suspended all intake because they're too short-staffed. In this email, the TJJD director warns they've had to cut programs and may soon be unable to, quote, even provide basic supervision for youth locked in their rooms. And then I screenshotted this email of her announcing this. And then I quote tweeted that and said... Despite the current interest in kids' mental health in the wake of Uvalde, Texas is now cutting the intervention program designed to help the most violent kids in the state. The ways in which this state fails its children are truly something else. They're super traumatized already, and then you're just adding a sort of form of torture, really, is what that is. I find the fact that you cover death row in Texas is so interesting. You're trying to find out what's going on and making sure that they're as well as can be. I mean, I'm going in as a reporter. I can only visit the same person once every 90 days so that reporters can't form like close bonds with people in prison. But in any case, uh, I, you know, I'm going for reporting purposes and I've been covering them long enough and writing about the death penalty long enough. So, I mean, I've definitely like gotten a name at that unit, which is a kind of odd thing. I could not uh, admire it more that you're doing that. A lot of those people then I presume are then being executed. So you're carrying around some of the last memories of these individuals on earth. People assume the hardest part of covering death row is witnessing the executions. Obviously that is, that's a lot. But I don't think it's the hardest part. And I think what you're getting at is what's harder. It's the fact that you've built relationships with these people because you've interviewed them over time. And it's so much harder to grapple with having interviewed someone who's talking about what they anticipate their death will be like, what they anticipate it will be like to be executed, what they expect to say for their last words. Like, you know, some of them are just shitty guys. Like, that's like, I'm not going to act like everybody's nice or something. Like, there are people on death row that are kind of what you think of as a person on death row. But 
I think that's a much smaller fraction of the death row population than what people would expect. Do you feel like the majority you might even qualify as kind of gentle or sensitive or have undergone some sort of change over the years? There's the people that have been there long enough that they've just sort of changed and matured. You know, if you've been on death row 20 years, you're not going to be the same person you were. Nobody's the same person they were 20 years ago. How would you describe that having to live on death row? I mean, in your, is that like just basically having a gun pointed at you all the time? It, is it sort of metaphorically? Not entirely. For most of the time you're there, you're, you know, you're slowly marching towards an execution date, but it used to be that the average stay on death row was less than 10 years, and now it's like slightly over 20. There is a lengthy appeals process, and lengthy does not mean fair or uh, or anything of that nature. When you go in there, I mean, what is the process? In Texas, I, you know, I have to, you know, schedule it and get approved, and the prisoner has to accept the visit, and then I have to send an equipment list of whatever equipment I'm going to take drive to the prison. It's about an hour and a half from Houston. You pull up and they search your trunk, uh, usually pretty cursory. You leave everything in your car. Like you can bring a camera and, you know, notebook and pen, pencil, whatever. You can't bring like anything to drink. You can't bring your phone. You can't bring a laptop. You, you can't bring shit. And there's, you know, very specific dress rules about like, you know, can't wear, you know, anything that is too tight or, I mean, they have like a whole bunch of rules. And then you go in and they they don't strip search you, but they like pat search and they check your stuff and they you go through a metal detector that I think often doesn't work. Um, and they put your stuff through a little x-ray belt, which also seems to be broken about half the time. You trade in your ID for a prison ID and they walk you back to the visiting area and then you sit down at a little booth and you interview the guy through plexiglass and you're, you're using a phone to talk to him. And you get an hour and you can do two one hour interviews per visit, which are all on Wednesday mornings. Then, you know, that's it. I'm just curious what that drive home is like or drive back to the office or whatever. Sometimes somebody said something that really sticks with you. One time I was there and this guy who is an example of someone on death row who has not changed, I think. But, you know, sometimes like the things that sit with you are there was one guy that I asked him about someone that he used to play Dungeons and Dragons with. He started just bawling. I have probably not seen someone cry that hard on me in a long, in, in a long time in an interview. Yeah. So many of your friends have been killed by the state. Like everyone you know, the plan is for them to be killed by the state. You talk in your book so eloquently about systemic racism and the way that prisons are designed to impede people. One of the interesting things is also that specifically in the context of death row, you're more likely to end up on death row if you had a white victim instead of a black victim. That's an aspect of systemic racism that people might not be as aware of. <laughs> Okay, so in April of 2020, I tweeted, update, after this pub, the prison called to say my use of video from an apparently contraband inmate phone was, quote, participation in a felony, and they would call the OIG to investigate. The prison called the prison cops on me, y'all. You've done so much investigating that uh, you've changed policy, right? Like some prisoners are able to have dentures now as a result of stories that you were writing about there. They actually didn't change the policy. What they did was when I wrote about how 
they weren't giving dentures to Texas prisoners who did not have teeth. Um, afterward, there was one particular state senator who was pretty incensed by that, and he leaned on the prison system to do something. So they bought a 3D printer and started 3D printing teeth. So there's like hundreds that have teeth because of this, but there are definitely hundreds more who still don't have them. And how was the process of writing, I don't know, presumably thousands of articles you've now written versus writing that book? There were things that were challenging that I didn't expect to be necessarily. Like, I'm pretty open and raw on Twitter. Yes. I think it's one of your greatest qualities, if I may say that. Thank you. I think that deciding how to balance that in the course of a book was a little different because in a book, I was a little bit more worried about, I don't know, not wanting to put out something that really would lend itself to sort of voyeurism. And so I had to, on the one hand, I want to be raw and not soft pedal anything and be realistic about what got me where I ended up. But on the other hand, I don't want to open the door to voyeurism or be gratuitously including really dark things. That was definitely a, a thing I had to sort of think through, usually with the help of friends who were, you know, reading things as I was writing them. I just inhaled like all of your tweets and your book in two days. So sounds depressing as fuck. <laughs> no, no, no. It's actually it's an absolute delight. So and thank you so much, Carrie, for making the time. Thank you. Um... <laughs> Booyah. So that was Carrie Blakinger. What an extraordinary writer and what an extraordinary life story. In my opinion, in my humble opinion, she's quite literally doing the Lord's work. And we are blessed to have her. So go follow Carrie on Twitter at K-E-R-I-B-L-A at Kiribla. And also, I just want to read to you a more recent couple of tweets that she sent out that uh, serve as a nice coda, I think, to this episode. So... On December 20th, 2022, Carrie tweeted out, So, as they say, personal news. I am leaving Texas next month to join the Los Angeles Times. I'll be covering the L.A. Sheriff's Department, jail, and related shenanigans. L.A. folks, now is the time to leak me stuff! Exclamation mark. No one will suspect you yet! Double exclamation mark. Then she adds... In the thread a little lower, Carrie tweets, When I came here, people back east thought I was crazy. But I have come to love this state, and I am so sad to leave it. Carrie adds another tweet to the thread. Most of all, I am deeply, deeply sad to leave behind me the 120,000 people in Texas prisons. Thank you for all the stories you have told me for the past six years. You have changed my life completely, and I will miss you all broken heart emoji and so what i encourage you to do listeners is you know i'm going to be rooting for carrie wherever she is i kind of feel sorry for those la deputies and again i encourage you to go follow her on twitter at k-e-r-i-b-l-a so you can cheer her on and you will see the tremendous outpouring for people all over texas about carrie blakinger what her writing has meant to other journalists and even more importantly to the inmates in the prison system and also go buy her book corrections in ink and prepare to have your heart shocked and made full in the reading oh 
and come say hi on the timeline at Gabe Hudson. <laughs>